0: The God of the Jews We know whom we worship, for salvation comes from the Jews. The depth of Jewish feeling about monotheism was formed by centuries of experience. As long as the nation had clung to its central conviction about the one God, it had prospered. Terrible suffering had been the penalty for any defection into polytheism result was that the celebrated quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 in the Revised Standard Version. And compare that with Jesus' quotation of it in Mark 12, verse 29. And I note that there is a Nash papyrus, which is the oldest known specimen of Hebrew biblical text, probably from the second century, ends the Shema with the words, one Lord is he. This defined Israel's national creed. It was spoken by every pious Israelite throughout his life and in the hour of death. To sense the fervor which surrounded Jewish belief in one God, we should think of our own deepest commitments, love of liberty and country, home and family. If you had been born a Jew of orthodox religious parents in first-century Palestine, you would have held the unshakable conviction that there is one and only one supreme creator God worthy of worship in the universe. This creed was inextricably woven into the fabric of Jewish life. The national holidays, the agricultural calendar, as well as the hope of national liberation from the Roman oppressor, and promise of future greatness, all these were founded on the revelation of the one person God contained in the pages of the writings we call the Old Testament. The Jews' religious literature defined the believer's relationship with that one God and provided instruction for dealing with his fellow human beings. Much of the Old Testament is a history, sometimes positive sometimes tragic, of the one God's dealings with his chosen nation, Israel. In addition, the sacred writings predicted a glorious future for the nation and the world, a day when everyone on earth would recognize and serve the one true God of Israel. And you read this in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. It was into this deeply committed and distinctive religious community that Jesus was born. The origins of the faithful community's devotion to monotheism were rooted in the covenant made with Abraham as the father of the faithful. Judaism's cardinal tenet that God is one Lord was strenuously instilled in the people by Moses, subsequently Some apostate Israelites had reverted to belief in the gods of their pagan neighbors. The representatives of these powerful ancient gods espoused temple prostitution, the burning of children to the god Molech, and mutilation of the body, to mention some of their more notable rites. The story recorded in the first five books of Israel's ancient literature describes a nation divinely chosen to be separate from the polytheistic world. By a powerful divine intervention, first at the call of Abraham and later at the Exodus, a whole nation was introduced to a being who claimed not only to be the sole creator of all that existed, but the only true God in existence. His message to his people, Israel, was unequivocal through moses he said i quote but the lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from egypt to be a people for his own possession as today to you it was shown that you might know that the lord he is god there is no other besides him That's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20 and verse 35. It is certain that the nation of Israel, to whom these grand declarations about the deity were given, knew nothing about a duality or trinity of persons in the Godhead. No fact could be more firmly established once their national literature is taken as a guide and if language has any stable meaning. One thing is indispensable. The nations surrounding Israel were under no illusion about Israel's belief in one God. This creed was partly responsible for the age-lasting persecution of the religious Jew, who refused to accept any other object of worship than his one God. Crusaders, those valiant 11th-century Christian warriors, relished the task of expelling so-called infidel monotheistic Muslims from the Holy Land. Their fervour led them likewise to the slaughter of helpless European Jews in one community after another. Three centuries later neither the Unitarian Jew or Christian nor a Protestant Trinitarian could survive the persecutions of the Spanish Inquisition without renouncing his religious beliefs and accepting Roman Catholicism or fleeing to some less hostile part of the world. It may come as a shock to many, but thousands of Christians, who also believed in the one-person God of the Jews, were able to escape the same cruel fate at the hands of the Church only by flight. Belief in a unipersonal God conferred on Israel a worldview which separated her from all other philosophies, religions, cultures, and nations. She retains her special understanding of God to this day. By contrast, the broad spectrum of Christianity holds to the idea of the three-person God of the Trinity—Father, Son, and Holy Spirit— with a minority claiming to believe in a two-person God, the Father, and the so-called Word. I note that that's the Worldwide Church of God, founded by Herbert Armstrong, which held this binitarian view, as it's called. Doctrinal changes in favor of Trinitarianism took place in 1995. In the binitarian view of God, both persons existed from eternity. Oriental religions admit to more than one God, or at least personal intermediate beings between the supreme God and the creation, as did much of the Greek world by which the early Christian church was influenced shortly after the death of its founder, Jesus the Messiah. Large numbers today are finding their theological roots in the oriental concept of many gods the creed that all of us are gods awaiting self-discovery, and, somewhat confusingly, that all is God. It is hard not to observe that religious anarchy inevitably ensues when every person is a god in his own right, determining his own creed and conduct. In order to emphasize the oneness of God to national Israel, so that there could be no chance of mistake or misunderstanding, God repeated through Moses, Know therefore this day, and lay it to heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is none other. That's Deuteronomy 4, verse 39. On the strength of this text, and many more like it, we can fully sympathize with Jewish devotion to the unipersonal God. The statement appears to be proof against all possibility of misinterpretation. The Jews understood one to mean one, and were never in doubt about the expression, no other. A leading contemporary Jewish spokesman, Pinkas Lapid, emphasizes the persistence with which Jews guard the heart of their faith he says this in order to protect the oneness of god from every multiplication watering down or amalgamation with the rites of the surrounding world the people of israel chose for itself that verse of the bible to be its credo which to this very day belongs to the daily liturgy of the synagogue but also is impressed as the first sentence of instruction upon the five-year-old schoolchild this is the confession which jesus acknowledged as the most important of all the commandments that's from lapide's book jewish monotheism and christian trinitarian doctrine written in 1981 as lapide recognizes when jesus was explaining the foundation of his belief he repeated the words spoken by moses To the nation of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and quoted by Jesus in Mark 12, verses 29 and 30. From Jesus' confirmation of the words of Moses recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, we are forced to conclude that he must have understood and believed whatever Moses believed these words to mean. If it had been otherwise, or if some radical change had occurred to negate Moses' definitive One God statement, the New Testament writers utterly fail to supply any equally unambiguous declaration to reverse or to revise this linchpin of the Jewish faith. A further confirmation of the persistence of Judaism's cardinal creed is found in the conversation of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. He told her forthrightly, You worship that which you do not know. We Jews worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That's a quotation from John chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Not once do we find Jesus criticizing his fellow countrymen for holding an inadequate understanding Of the number of persons in the Godhead. Nor indeed did Paul recognize any God other than the God of Israel. He expected Gentiles to be grafted into Israel and to worship that same God. I quote Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? That's in Romans chapter 3, verse 29 and compare with that Romans 11, verse 17. The God known to the Jew Paul was concisely defined by him in Galatians 3, verse 20, in the words of the Amplified Translation of the New Testament, which reads, I quote, God is only one person. End of quotation. Early in his ministry, Jesus strongly confirmed the divine revelation given to Moses. Do not think, Jesus said, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Matthew 5, verse 17. The first principle of the great summary of Israel's law given in the Torah through Moses provided the national creed. Quote, you shall have no other gods besides me. Exodus 20, verses 1-3 to If there were one sole, unique, all-powerful being in the universe, wanting to reveal to his creation the fact that he alone was God, and that there was no other, just how could this have been stated without any possibility of error? What could have been said to ensure not the slightest chance of misunderstanding? How would any one of us express the absolute uniqueness of God if it were our responsibility to make that message clear to an entire nation? Would we not have said, as Moses reports God, saying, See now that I, I am He, and there's no God besides me. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. Israel, to this day, in response to these categorical declarations, will accept none but the one person God of Moses as a result of those words. Regardless of any other religious differences, the oneness of God remains the binding thread Which unites the Jewish community. The Hebrew Bible and the New Testament contain well over 20,000 singular pronouns and verbs describing the one God. Language has no clearer or more obvious way of providing a testimony to Israel's and Jesus' unitary monotheism. The being revealed in Israel's Torah was a God to be sharply distinguished from the pagan gods of Egypt. By an act of power, God had rescued an enslaved nation from captivity. He was a God of awesome power, and yet personal and approachable. A God to be loved, of whom it was said, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 33 verse 11. God was a person with whom David communed. I quote, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to thee, Thy face, Lord, do I seek. Psalm 27 verse 8. At the Exodus, the Jews knew that for the first time in history, a whole nation was brought into intimate contact with with the Creator God through his constituted representative. This unparalleled event was to be embedded in the national consciousness forever. To be banished from their worship were the gods of the world around them. Tragically, superstitious fears and the desire to be like the other nations sometimes tempted Israel to embrace the multiple gods of paganism. For this, they suffered disastrously. Shortly after their flight out of Egypt, at fearful cost to themselves, they built a golden calf as an object of worship. The nation needed continually to be reminded of its unique creed. Quote, listen Israel, Yahweh, our God, is the one, the only Yahweh. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, as translated by the New Jerusalem Bible. Through the prophet Isaiah, Israel was once again made aware of its national identity. I quote, you are my witnesses, and understand that I am he, Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. That's Isaiah 43, verse 10. Theologies which promise their followers that they will one day become God seem not to grasp the exclusive prerogative claimed by the one who insists that there has been no God formed prior to him, and there will be none after him. Isaiah's continued emphasis on the oneness of God is pointed and clear. He quotes God as saying, I am the first, I am the last, and there is no God besides me. That's Isaiah 44, verse 6. The question is repeated. Is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. That's Isaiah 44, verse 8. This exclusive claim was an integral part of the religious instruction with which Jesus was nurtured. It was a creed which he held in common with every young Jew. His repeated reference to the prophet Isaiah, indeed to the entire Old Testament, during his public ministry, demonstrates how significantly his theology had been formed by the Hebrew Scriptures. The God whom Jesus served had announced himself as a single person, never triune. We should not be surprised at the tenacity with which the Jews preserved the concept of one single unique creator God. Their persistence was encouraged by Isaiah's continued repetition of the most important of all religious facts prophet again speaks of Israel's God, quote, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Or, as the Hebrew reads, who was with me? Isaiah 44, verse 24. Few statements could be better calculated to banish forever from the Jewish mind the idea that more than one person had been responsible for the creation. The emphasis is even more striking when the same writer in seven separate verses in the 45th chapter of his book records the following. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me there is no God. That's Isaiah 45 verse 5. These statements were designed to fix forever in Israel's mind idea that God is one. The same one God continued through Isaiah to say, and I quote, it is I who made the earth and created man upon it. Isaiah 45 verse 12. It is widely taught that the one who is supposed to have become Jesus, the Son of God of the New Testament, was responsible for the work of creation. How, on the basis of what we've read, could such an idea be conceived? Would not the writings of Isaiah prevent such a notion from entering the Jewish mind? I quote again, Surely God is with you, and there is no one else, no other God. That's from Isaiah 45, verse 14. And again, I quote, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth, and made it. He established it, and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. That's Isaiah 45, verse 18. Two further passages challenged Israel to faithful devotion to the one God. I quote, Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Saviour? There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none other. That's Isaiah 45, verses 21 and 22. Some have confused the use of the word Saviour in this text, with the frequent reference of the same word to Jesus, the Messiah. He is quite obviously also called Savior in the New Testament, as indeed are the Judges in the book of Judges, and as also Josephus called Vespasian. I note there Judges chapter 3, 9 and 15, where the word Deliverer is elsewhere rendered as Saviour. We note the distinction drawn in Jude 25, where both Jesus and God are named at the close of the book. I quote, To the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Quite clearly, the Jewish concept of a one-person God is not disturbed by this New Testament writer. In fact, there can be no clearer statement made than this, that there is, quote, only one person in the Godhead. Both God the Father and Jesus Christ are mentioned in the same sentence, but Jesus is obviously distinguished from the only God. Other New Testament writers make equally unambiguous statements. The Father of Jesus is the only absolute Saviour. Others than he can function as Saviour in a subordinate and delegated sense. It was into this Jewish culture, with its deeply entrenched belief in the one God, that Jesus was born. Nineteen centuries later, an Orthodox Israeli Jew, Pinchas Lapid, faculty member of the Bar Ilan University in Israel, whom we cited earlier, shows that the Jews were forbidden to deviate from belief in the oneness of God. I quote, From the Hebrew word echad, meaning one, we learn not only that there is none outside of the Lord, but also that the Lord is one and that therefore the Lord cannot be viewed as something put together which would be divisible into various properties or attributes. That's from Pinchard's book, Jewish Monotheism and Christian Trinitarian Doctrine. No wonder that according to the biblical record, when Israel chose to embrace other gods Chaos ensued, the nation divided, and the threatening prophecies of Isaiah came to pass. National captivity was the penalty for their defection into polytheism. It may well be that the confusion and fragmentation we witness in the history of Christianity is to be traced to exactly the same defection from the original belief that God was one person. The concept of the one-person God was not limited to the prophet Isaiah. Hosea reports Israel's God as saying, and I quote, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me. For there is no Savior besides me. That's Hosea chapter 13, verse 4. Moreover, the unique status of the one God was not limited to those ancient days. We received the clear impression from the prophet Joel, speaking of a future Israel after it has achieved its promised greatness that the nation would still and forever be tied to the one God. I quote, Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other that's from Joel chapter 2, verse 27. Joel lets us know that whatever or whoever the God of the Jews of the Old Testament was, he was to remain their God in perpetuity. The Jewish mind was convinced that the one God, the Creator, was also the Father of the nation. So says the prophet Malachi. I quote, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? That's Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. See also First Chronicles 29, verse 10, where the God of Israel is also our Father. Nothing could be clearer than that the one God of Jewish monotheism, on which Jesus' heritage was founded, was the Father. This unique being is very frequently described as God and Father in the New Testament. Indeed, he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in Romans 15, verse 6, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, chapter 11, verse 31, and 1 Peter 1, verse 3. The Christ is the Son of God. Highly significant is the fact that Jesus even as Lord is still subordinate to his God. The Messianic title Lord therefore does not mean that Jesus is God. The Hebrew word Elohim with little authority from those trained in the Hebrew language Some Trinitarians and Binitarians sometimes advance the statement in Genesis 1 verse 26 as proof, in contradiction of the evidence of thousands of singular pronouns denoting the one God, that a plurality of persons in the Godhead was responsible for the creation. I quote, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. This argument is precarious. Modern scholars no longer take the Hebrew phrase let us or the word Elohim meaning God to mean a plurality of God persons as creator. It is most likely that the plural pronoun us contains a reference to the one God's attendant Council of Angels. I note we find exactly that in 1 Kings 22, verses 19 to 22, and we note the strong statement of the Trinitarian commentator G.J. Wenham, I quote, Christians have traditionally seen that this verse in Genesis 1.26 is an adumbration or foreshadowing of the Trinity. It is now universally admitted that this was not what the plural meant to the original author, as from Wenham's Word Biblical Commentary on Genesis 1-15, to written in 1987. See also the note in the NIV Study Bible, written in 1985. I quote, God speaks in Genesis one hundred twenty six. As the Creator King, announcing his crowning work to the members of his heavenly court, see also Genesis three twenty-two and Genesis eleven verse seven, as well as Isaiah six verse eight. See also 1 Kings twenty-two, nineteen to twenty-three, Job fifteen verse eight, and Jeremiah twenty-three verse 18. The council of angels who themselves had been created in the image of God and had been witnesses to the creation of the universe, as we read in Job 38 verse 7, they are the ones referred to in Genesis 1.26. It is fanciful to imagine that this one verse supports the idea that God was speaking to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Where in Scripture does God ever speak to his own spirit? The text says nothing at all about an eternal Son of God, the second member of a co-equal trinity. Moreover, the us of the text in Genesis one twenty-six gives no indication of two other equal partners in the Godhead. If God is a single person, His use of the word us means that he's addressing someone other than himself, that's to say, other than God. A Hebrew lexicon of the Bible will confirm that the word Elohim, God, is not a so-called uniplural word, meaning that two or more persons make up the Godhead, or, as some have thought, the God family. The peculiarities of any language must be reckoned with if we are to gain a proper sense of its meaning. This, we will discover, is indispensable in our search for the true understanding. The recognized facts of the Hebrew language will not support a case for multiple persons as God. We note that the Gesenius Hebrew grammar, a standard authority, has to say, this about the word Elohim. I quote, The plural of majesty sums up the several characteristics belonging to the idea, besides posing the secondary sense of an intensification of the original idea, that the language has entirely rejected the idea of a numerical plurality in Elohim, whenever it denotes one God, Is proved especially by its being almost invariably joined with a singular attribute. That's from Jesenius' Hebrew Grammar of 1910. See also the Standard Authority Hebrew and English Lexicon of the Old Testament by Brown, Driver, and Briggs, 1968. Jesenius lists many examples of Hebrew words, with plural endings which are not plural in meaning. For example, panim, meaning face. Elohim is modified by a singular adjective in Psalm 7, verse 10. We must respect the fact that the Jews' familiarity with their own Hebrew language had never led them to conclude that a plurality of persons in the Godhead, was remotely hinted at in this creation chapter of Genesis. In the event that we might feel the Jews missed something from their own Bible, we should note in the succeeding verses, verses 27 to 31, that the singular pronoun is always used with the word God. In His, not their, own image, In the image of God, He, not they, created them. Verse 27. One will be hard-pressed to conclude from this verse, where the personal pronoun describing God, His, is singular, that a plurality of beings was intended. Note further, quote, Look, I, not we have given you every plant yielding seed for food, and God saw all that he, not they, had made, and it was very good, in verses 29 to 31. I note that an occasional grammatical anomaly cannot possibly offset the evidence of thousands of occurrences in which the Divine Name and Titles take singular verbs. Where a plural verb is found with Elohim, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 23, the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 17, verse 21, replaces the plural with a singular verb. This shows that the very exceptional plural was of no significance. Elohim, in Genesis 31, verse 24, may be rendered, as Calvin and others thought, as angels. As, for example, also in Psalm 8, verse 5, and its quotation in Hebrews 2, verse 7. Yahweh and Adonai, the Lord God, invariably take a singular verb. The singular word El and Eloah, another word for God, confirm that God is one person. It is amazing that some continue to advance against the evidence of thousands of texts in which God is described by singular pronouns and verbs that four, quote, us texts or verses are supposed to be a hint that God is triune. A study of the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, lends no support at all to the persistent idea that God, in Genesis 1 verse 1, includes both God, the Father, as well as His Son and Spirit. We should not miss the obvious difficulty of such an interpretation. If Elohim implies more than one person in the text, how is one going to explain that the identical word Elohim refers to Moses. I quote, And the Lord said to Moses, Look, I make you God, Elohim, to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. That's in Exodus 7, verse 1. Surely no one would claim plurality for the one person Moses. The single pagan god, Dagon, is called Elohim, God. I quote, The ark of the God Elohim of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God, Elohim. That's in First Samuel 5, verse 7. Similarly, the word Elohim is used to describe the God of the Amorites. I quote, Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, Elohim, gives you to possess judges 11 verse 24 furthermore the messiah himself is addressed as elohim in psalm 45 verse 6 quoted in hebrews 1 verse 8 no one would contend that the messiah is more than a single person from this evidence we conclude that the jews in whose language the old testament is recorded did not employ the word Elohim, used of the true God, to mean more than one person. Those who attempt to read the Trinity or Binity into Genesis 1.26 or into the word Elohim are involved in a very forced interpretation. Elohim is plural in form but singular in meaning. When it refers to the one God, it's followed by a singular verb. No one before the 12th century imagined that plurality in the Godhead was in any way indicated by the Hebrew title for God. Many Trinitarians had themselves long ago ceased to argue for the Trinity in Genesis 1 verse 1 or Genesis 1 verse 26. It is reasonable to put this question to those Trinitarians who say that Elohim is a real plural. Why do you not put an S on God? In English, plurals are marked by a final S. If the plural pronoun us in Genesis 1.26 describes a plural Godhead, then the Godhead ought regularly to be referred to as they and them. Trinitarians are unhappy with this, showing that their notion of the Godhead defies the laws of language and logic. If God really is plural, why not instead translate the opening verse of Genesis 1, quote, In the beginning, gods. The latent polytheism of much Trinitarian thinking would then be clearly exposed. It is untrue to say that the Hebrew word echad, meaning one, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, points to so-called compound unity. A recent defense of the Trinity by Robert Morey in his book The Trinity Evidence and Issues, written in 1996, that book argues that when one modifies a collective noun like bunch, or heard, a plurality is implied in echad. The argument is entirely fallacious. The sense of plurality is derived from the collective noun heard, etc., not from the word one. Echad in Hebrew is the numeral one. I quote, Abraham was one, echad, That's in Ezekiel 33, verse 24. Or, Abraham was only one man, as the NIV translates there. In Isaiah 51, verse 2, we find also described the same Abraham as one, Echad, alone, as the King James Version has it, the only one, the New Jerusalem Bible. Where there's no possible misunderstanding, about the meaning of this simple word. Echad, meaning one, appears in translation as the numeral one, or only, or alone, entire, undivided, one single, as we find in the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, written in 1974. The normal meaning of Echad is one, and not two, as we read in Ecclesiastes 4 verse 8, I quote, God is one Lord, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, cited by Jesus in Mark 12 verse 29 in the New American Standard Version. Hence, obviously, one person only and distinct from the Lord Messiah, who is mentioned in the same passage in Mark 12 verse 36. The one God is identified with the Father in Malachi 1 verse 6 and Malachi 2 verse 10 and is constantly in the New Testament distinguished from Jesus, the Son of God, who is presented as a separate individual. In the Hebrew Bible, the Lord's anointed, literally the Lord's Christ, is the King of Israel. This agent of the Lord God is on no occasion confused with God. The claim that one really means compound oneness is an example of argument by assertion without logical proof. Robert Morey holds that echad does not mean an absolute one, but a compound one. The argument involves an easily detectable linguistic fallacy. Echad appears some 960 times in the Hebrew Bible, and in no case does the word itself carry a hint of plurality. It means strictly, quote, one and not two or more. Echad is a numerical adjective, and natural enough, It is sometimes found modifying a collective noun, one family, one herd, one bunch. But we should observe carefully that the sense of plurality resides in the compound noun and not in the word echad, meaning one. Early in Genesis, we learn that the two will become one flesh. Genesis 2:24. The word one here means precisely one and no more. one flesh and not two fleshes. One bunch of grapes is just that, one and not two bunches. Thus when God is said to be one Lord in Deuteronomy 6 verse four quoted in the New Testament by Jesus in Mark 12 verse 29, the American Standard Version, God is a single Lord and no more. Imagine that someone claimed that the word one meant compound one in the words one tripod. Suppose someone thought that the one United States of America implied that one was really plural in meaning. The specious reasoning is obvious. The idea of plurality belongs to the word tripod and states, not to the word one. It is a subterfuge to transfer to one the plurality which belongs only to the following noun. It would be similar to saying that one really means 100 when it appears in the combination one centipede. Our point can be confirmed in any lexicon of Biblical Hebrew. The lexicon by Köhler and Baumgartner gives as the fundamental meaning of echad one single. That's from the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, written in 1967. When the spies returned with evidence of the fruitfulness of the Promised Land, they carried, and I quote, A single, Echad, cluster of grapes. Numbers 13, verse 23, New Revised Standard Version. Echad is often rendered a single or only one. For example, Revised Standard Version, Exodus 10, verse 19, a single locust. Exodus 33, verse 5, a single moment. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, a single witness. Thus, when it comes to the matter of Israel's creed, the text informs us, as do the multiple singular pronouns for God, that Israel's supreme Lord is, quote, one single Lord, one Lord alone. It has been necessary to belabor our point because the recent defense of the Trinity makes the astonishing assertion that echad always implies a, quote, compound unity. The author then builds his case for a multi-personal God on what he thinks is a firm foundation in the Hebrew Bible. The linguistic fact is that echad never means, quote, Compound one, but strictly a single one. The fact that many waters were gathered to one Echad place, Genesis 1 9, provides no data at all for a compound sense for one, much less for a plurality in the Godhead. I note that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 alone, we have examples of one day, one place, one of his ribs, one of us, if according to Trinitarian theory, us means a triune God, one would presumably mean one single member of the three. Since the strange argument about a so-called plurality in the word one is so widespread and has apparently been accepted uncritically, we add here the comments of a Trinitarian professor of theology, who concedes that the popular argument from the word echad, meaning one, is as frail as the argument from the word Elohim. No case for a multi-personal God can be based on the fact that one in Hebrew and English may sometimes modify a collective term. Even weaker than the argument from Elohim is the argument that the Hebrew word for one, echad, used in the Shema, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, refers to a unified one, not an absolute one. Hence, some Trinitarians have argued the Old Testament has a view of a united Godhead. It is, of course, true that the meaning of the word may in some context denote a unified plurality. For example, Genesis 2, verse 24, They shall become one flesh. But this really proves nothing. An examination of the Old Testament usage reveals that the word echad is as capable of various meanings as is our English word one. The context must determine whether a numerical or unified singularity is intended. From Gregory Boyd in his book Oneness, Pentecostals, and the Trinity, written in 1995. It is, in fact, not strictly true that echad denotes a unified plurality. Echad may, in fact, modify a compound noun. It has sometimes been argued that God would have been described as yachid, that's to say, solitary, isolated, the only one, if there were only one person in the Godhead. The use of echad, one single, however, is quite sufficient to indicate that the one person comprises the Deity. The word yahid is rare in Biblical Hebrew. It carries in the Bible the meaning of beloved, only begotten, or even lonely, and would be inappropriate as a description of the Deity. I note that Yahid is in fact found as a description of the one God in literature outside the Bible, the pseudepigrapher. There's another word, bad, meaning alone, by oneself, isolated, which does in fact describe the one God. Deuteronomy 4, verse 35 states, There is no one else besides him. The absolute singularity of the one God is similarly emphasized when he is addressed, You are Jehovah, or Yahweh, alone, Nehemiah 9, verse 6. Another quotation, You are God alone, the God of all the kingdoms of the earth, Second Kings 19, verse 15. Quote, You alone are God. Psalm 86, verse 10. The one God of Israel is a single person, unrivaled and in a class of his own. He is one with all the mathematical simplicity implied by that word. Compare with his remarks on the Old Testament name for God in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. I quote, The name Yahweh, is distinguished by a specific content. God is not just any deity, but a distinct divine person. Behind statements like, The Lord is God, 1 Kings 18, verse 39, or The Lord is His name, Exodus 15:3, stand the more specific expressions, Yahweh, or Yahweh of hosts, is His name. There's an encounter here with the definite person of God. There's no suggestion here that God is three persons. With these facts before us, it would be difficult not to sympathize with the first century Jew possessing the Old Testament as his guide for maintaining with unrelenting tenacity a belief in one God, consisting of one person. A search of the Hebrew Scriptures for any sign of a duality or trinity of divine persons active in the creation will prove to be fruitless. I note the following statements from standard authorities which confirm the weakness of any attempt to base the Trinity on the Old Testament. I quote, There is in the Old Testament no indication of distinctions in the Godhead. It is an anachronism to find either the doctrine of the Incarnation or that of the Trinity in its pages. That's from the article on God in the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics in 1913. Another quotation. Theologians today are in agreement that the Hebrew Bible does not contain a doctrine of the Trinity. That's from the Encyclopedia of Religion, written in 1987. Another quotation. The doctrine of the Trinity is not taught in the Old Testament. That's from the New Catholic Encyclopedia of 1967. Another quotation. The Old Testament tells us nothing explicitly or by necessary implication of a triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no evidence that any sacred writer even suspected the existence of a Trinity within the Godhead. Even to see in the Old Testament suggestions or foreshadowings or veiled signs of the Trinity of persons is to go beyond the words and intent. Of the sacred writers. That's a quotation from Edmund Fortman in his book, The Triune God, written in 1972. Another quotation. The Old Testament can scarcely be used as authority for the existence of distinctions within the Godhead. The use of us by the Divine Speaker in Genesis 1.26, 3.32, And 11, verse 7, is strange, but it is perhaps due to his consciousness of being surrounded by other beings of a loftier order than men, Isaiah 6, verse 8. That quotation was from A.B. Davidson, the article on God, in the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible, 1911. To propose... A Godhead of more than one person would require us to cast aside the rules of language and grammar. Responsible historians, both secular and religious, agree that the Jews of Jesus' time held firmly to faith in a unipersonal God. It is one of the great ironies of history that Christian theologians have denied the Jews the right to explain the meaning of God in their own scriptures. The Jewish voice on this matter needs urgently to be heard again. I quote, The Old Testament is strictly monotheistic. God is a single personal being. The idea that a trinity is to be found there, or even in any way shadowed forth, is an assumption that has long held sway in theology, but is utterly without foundation. The Jews, as a people, under its teachings, became stern opponents of all polytheistic tendencies, and they have remained unflinching monotheists to this day. On this point, there is no break between the Old Testament Scriptures and the New The monotheistic tradition is continued. Jesus was a Jew, trained by Jewish parents in the Old Testament Scriptures. His teaching was Jewish to the core. A new gospel indeed, but not a new theology. That's from the book by L.L. Payne, A Critical History of the Evolution of Trinitarianism, written in 1902. Judaism is not as devoid of dogmatic formulas as one often supposes. Judaism has its own creeds and articles of faith. The Shema Yisrael in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, is not only a liturgical formula and a commandment, it is also a confession of faith and considered as more important than the historical Jewish creeds. As a confession of faith, the Shema is the affirmation of the unity and uniqueness of God. It constitutes the highest expression of the Jewish monotheism. The words Adonai is our God, Adonai is one, this is the Jewish creed. The Christian symbols of faith, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, the Athanasian Creed, to quote only the main ones, are considered by the Jews as being in flat contradiction to this fundamental assertion of Jewish monotheism in the Shema. Claude Montefiore has put it in the clearest way I quote, as to the nature of God, all Jews maintain that the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, of the Trinity, of the eternal Son, of the personality of the Holy Spirit are infractions of the divine unity and are false. That's a quotation from Lev Gillett in his book Communion in the Messiah, studies in the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. Another quotation, the belief that God is made up of several personalities, such as the Christian belief in the Trinity, is a departure from the pure conception of the unity of God. Israel has throughout the ages rejected everything that marred or obscured the conception of pure monotheism which it has given to the world, and rather than admit any weakening of it, Jews are prepared to wander, to suffer, and to die. That's from Chief Rabbi J. H. Hertz in the Pentateuch and the Haftorahs of 1960. Trinitarian theologians have struggled with the obvious problem of how to reconcile the Trinity with the fact that Christianity's matrix was Unitarian. The Trinitarian theologian Leonard Hodgson wrote, Christianity arose within Judaism, and the monotheism of Judaism was then, as it still is, Unitarian. How was the Christian Church to state a theology adequate to express the new knowledge of God which had come to it through Jesus Christ. Could the monotheism be revised so as to include the new revelation without ceasing to be monotheistic? That's a quotation from Hodgson's Christian Faith and Practice, seven lectures, given at Oxford in 1952. Jesus was a Jew, committed to the creed of Israel. Mark 12, verses 28 and following. This fact alone should persuade us that a departure from Jesus' Jewish creed has occurred somewhere in the history of the faith. For the moment, we must emphasize that Judaism was Unitarian, never Trinitarian. It was under the tutelage of this Jewish school of thought and empowered by belief in Israel's one God that the promised Messiah reached maturity and entered his unique ministry. Can it be demonstrated that Jesus upheld and taught belief in this same one God of the Jews throughout his career? To answer this question, it is only reasonable that we consult his own words Faithfully recorded by those who accompanied him as he proclaimed the saving gospel of the coming kingdom of God in Palestine, as we read in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and Luke chapter 4, verse 43.